Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, hello, Ecclesia. Pastor Ian Graham here, and it's a joy to be with you. We were able to meet in the park for the last couple weeks, and uh, as we did that, uh, I wanted to make sure that these teachings made their way to the podcast, and so uh, these are some re-records of those messages that were given in the park. And for us, we are wrapping up this series called Personal Jesus, and for me, this series has been really beautiful. I just think the stories of the resurrected Jesus and the way that he meets with people and the way that he announces that he is the resurrected Lord is just so beautiful. It's so personal, um, you know, as, as the the sermon series title would suggest, but it's but it's also so subtle and so slow. I mean, just think about this juxtaposition. The world has changed forever, and Jesus is telling the story around tables, and he's showing the disciples the life that he is calling them to and the life that he has given them. I just think it's so incredible. So I wanted to make sure that we had this, and especially this teaching serves as a bridge to our summer series which will be on the book of Acts, uh, which I'm so excited about, especially as we look towards relaunching the church uh, in the fall and what it looks like for us to be a people who have this biblical imagination for what the church is, what it could be, what it should be. And so I hope that you will tune in to that teaching series as well. So I want to read the teaching text for today, and then we will get into uh, just some of the things that we can see as Jesus uh, ascends to heaven. And during this uh, teaching series, we'll be talking about what's called the Ascension, which is often one of the most overlooked but most significant elements of the Christian faith and the confession, is that Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we're going to unpack some of the implications of that over the next few moments. But let's read from the book of Acts. From Acts 1, Luke writes, Hear the word of the Lord. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This Jesus said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. In the third century, in Carthage in northern Africa, two women have been marched 
into a local circus surrounded by mobs who have come to watch them die. But as these two women are paraded before the hungry mob, the mob cannot help but be struck by the resolve, by the serenity, by even the joy with which these women carry themselves even as they face their death. And what's more, it's clear that both of these women have given birth very recently, one of them within the last day or so. These two women would be immortalized. Their, t- their tale would be told by the early church and would be still told today. These women, Perpetua and Felicitas, would be martyred, killed by the sword. But what happened that day? What they faced and how they faced it would mark the church and would mark those who witnessed it that day. Fast forwarding, in 1724 in Germany, Count Ludwig von Ziesendorf established a colony of refugees, persecuted Christian minorities at his family's home in central Germany. Moravians, Reformed, and Catholics, all from different parts of central Europe, all living there on this estate together. And they had been driven there because their particular brand of Christianity was a religious minority where they lived. And so they had been driven from their hometowns. And you know what they did when they arrived at this place, which should have been a a refuge and a haven for them, fleeing persecution? You know what they did as they fled persecution because they were being uh, told they had the wrong brand of Christianity? They fought. They fought with all the other people who practiced the faith differently than they did. They basically perpetuated the same cycle that had been done to them. So Count von Ziesendorf set up a 24-hour prayer cycle. It was really all he knew to do to try to bring some sense of harmony to this, these uh, warring factions. And for three years, the people prayed 24 hours a day at this place called Hernhut, which means the Lord's Watch. And they prayed, barely avoiding the conflict that would drive them into chaos. But in August of 1727, the Holy Spirit moved powerfully upon Hernhut, culminating in a communion service. There was a revival on this day that not only brought life to the community, but also from this small corner of the world in central Germany, missionaries would be sent all over the world. A hundred-year prayer movement, 24 hours would be undertaken. The Moravians would deeply impact John Wesley, who would be a major player in a later revival. God's power moved in ways that were undeniable. We fast forward to our own day. The Iranian church is among the fastest growing in the world. This movement is almost entirely undertaken in secret as it is illegal for a Muslim to convert and for Christians to try to evangelize and and to have people proselytize. And much of the church is being led by women who, in this culture, are second-rate citizens in Iran, and they're subject to traumatizing and brutalizing. But still, the more they are threatened, the more they are harmed, the more the church is growing. The Iranian church has no buildings, no programs, simply people who are reading the Bible and trying to do what it says, trying to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit day by day. One Iranian church leader says, everything is foundational on prayer. We find people of peace through prayer. We find locations through prayer. 
And when we obey the Bible, Jesus has gone faster than us. He has come in the people's dreams or he's come miraculously in their lives. And when we hear this, we know that Jesus has gone ahead of us. My word, that is beautiful. We look at these different movements and if we wanted to tell the story of God's power manifesting itself in, in situations that would seem so, uh, so counterintuitive, we could be here endlessly. And this is what heaven will be for, telling the stories of how Jesus' kingdom came near in power. But we see that the story of the church is defined by the power of Jesus by his power to draw people in, by his power to be with us, even in the midst of suffering, even in the, in the valley of the shadow of death, God's power is the undercurrent that guides and leads the church. And so today, we want to talk about power. And power in our culture and in our world is a very precarious subject. You know, through the 21st century, through the movements of postmodernism, we, we live in a post-power narrative society. People like Freud and Marx and Nietzsche were always pointing to the narratives of power that were a part of structures that were uh, central to society, especially in Western culture. And if you think about movements in our own day, movements like the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement, There has been a reckoning with power, a reckoning with people in positions of authority who have abused that authority. And people have found that by telling their story, that there is power, that there is power even though they may not have the positional authority, even though they may not have the civic authority, that by standing and saying, no more, no more will I hide in silence, that there has been incredible energy brought forth. And so really, we live in a time when power is suspect at every level. And the church's claim to power has been brought under that same microscope. You know, the horrible and and vicious things that have been brought to light as many, uh, so many children have been abused and and, and so many children have been uh, put in harm's way by the church has caused people to say, well, the church, you know, has been nothing but a microcosm of the way that humanity abuses power. You think about the many Christian leaders that have fallen, those who were tangled up in webs of power and celebrity and were using that authority to enrich themselves or to take advantage and to prey upon those in their congregations. Yes, power is a very precarious subject. However, Power is our birthright, and power as we see it from the Jesus lens, as we see it through the lens of Jesus' kingdom, is not something to be held onto. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that though Jesus was in equality with God, he did not regard that equality as something to be held onto. Jesus had all the power in the world, and yet, as Paul writes, Rather, instead instead of holding on to that power, he emptied himself of that power, taking the form of a slave. When John and James come to Jesus and they ask, can we be the powerful ones in your kingdom? Can we sit at your right and your left hand? Jesus says, you don't understand the way that kingdom power operates. Kingdom power is not top down. Holy Spirit power is not positional authority. 
Holy Spirit power is those who are willing to serve, those who are willing to bow down and wash the feet of their neighbors. This is what kingdom power looks like. But power, as we see it through the lens of the Jesus movement, we see that power is a a, a theme that is present throughout the biblical narrative. The first temptation in the garden features the serpent asking the first man and the first woman, Oh, did God really say that you couldn't eat from that tree? And what's the lie that he tells? He tells the two that if they eat from the tree that God has forbidden them to eat from, that they will in fact not die, but they will be like God, that they will have God-like power. Power is the alluring, it is the promising thing that sort of uh, is a theme that, that underrides the entire narrative of the scriptures. And Jesus here in Acts 1 says, wait, for you will receive power. And how many times do we as people try to grasp, try to take control of the situation, try to form power for ourselves and to take hold of it? You think about Abram, who became Abraham. Sarah, in his, uh, in his timing, uh, God had told Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child, but they had been waiting, and nothing was happening. So Sarah gets fed up. She, she, she gets tired of waiting on God's promises, and she says, Here, take my slave woman, Hagar, and go and make a child with her. And so Abraham, for whatever reason, does. And they have Ishmael. And Ishmael introduces all of these broken family dynamics into the family of the promise. Now, Ishmael will have his own story as God meets with Hagar and Ishmael in incredible ways. Hagar is the first person to name God in the scriptures, the God who sees. And yet, what would it look like if Abraham and Sarah would have just waited upon the Lord? You think about the kingdom of Israel. They are are a nation established by God's power, redeemed from slavery in Egypt You know, they they march around Jericho, God doing these miraculous things to bring them victory, to bring his uh, promises to bear. And yet, they look at all the other nations and they see the kings riding into battle and they say, we want that kind of power. We want the power of a person to lead us, a person to put our hopes and our dreams upon. And so they demand a king. And Samuel tells them, he says, you you know, you will have a king, but here's what's going to happen with this king. And eventually we see that the kings are responsible for disintegrating the fabric of the, ki- of the kingdom that God had given to the people. And the kings are responsible for leading the people astray. When we try to take power into our own hands, something happens. There, there's a trust that is broken there. And so the question becomes, how does God exercise power? How does God move in power in our day? Jesus tells the disciples in Acts 1, in that text that we read, wait and you will receive power. And yet, when we look around, often it feels like God's power is not presence. And and this this is so much the air that we breathe. Uh, The enlightenment is is built upon the assumption that there could be a God, that there could be a creator, but he's not here. And so he has left us to run the world. This is the Epicurean, the deist framework. Thomas Jefferson, one of the most famous deists, wrote in a letter to a friend. He says, Epictetus and Epicurus give a laws for governing ourselves. 
And Jesus is a supplement of the duties and charities we owe to others. What Thomas Jefferson is saying is, is that in order to get things done, in order to live in the real world, we need the philosophies. We need those who have told us, you know, how to exercise power. Epicurus, the, the founding uh, of the, the school of uh, Epicurean school, excuse me. And Epicureanism basically establishes that God, there, there could be a God, but he's far off. And so it's up to us to figure out how to run and rule the world. And this often, this assumption is taken from this text that we read in Acts 1. The, the disciples see Jesus go up into heaven and they're looking up into heaven and the angels say, men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? Jesus will come back. And oftentimes people have filled in this gap by saying, okay, now Jesus is in heaven. He is far off. But this misses the, what happens in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, which we will be teaching upon over the next uh, teaching that will be available. But in Acts chapter 2, Jesus pours out the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is God's presence. Not, not absent, not far off, but near in every circumstance. And in Acts 2, at the birth of the church, Jesus pours out His presence into every moment. And so, yes, Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. That's because Jesus on the cross won the victory that is for all of time. Jesus' victory is not in question. Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection demonstrates that God has conquered sin and death. But as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus has everything put under his feet. But the final realization of that victory, this is an already and not yet. Jesus has already won, and he won the day on that day on Calvary 2,000 years ago. But, but Jesus is full realization of that victory is yet to come. It's when he will come again, as is promised here in Acts chapter 1. And so in Acts 2, when Jesus pours out his power, his presence, Jesus is saying that my life is with you, that that victorious life is with you in every circumstance. And as we'll see in the book of Acts, those circumstances include everything from trying to figure out what to do next, trying to figure out how to be with God on mission, to suffering for the name of Jesus. Jesus, in pouring out his power, pouring out his spirit, is pouring out his life in ours. And so when we think about power, we have to understand that God wants us to have his power, not as something that we can yield and wield for ourselves, but as something that we can live with in order to know who we are and in order to serve the world. I think a good definition of God's power, God's power in us is the presence of God confirming his promises in us forming us in his holiness, and moving us to bear witness to what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. I'm going to say that again. God's power in us is the presence of God confirming his promises in us, forming his holiness in us, and moving us to bear witness to what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And so Jesus says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And you think about a witness. A witness is just somebody who has seen something happen and they're telling the story from their vantage point. 
And oftentimes, Christians have, have put themselves in a different seat. You know, if you think you envision a courtroom, we're not the judge. We're not the people that are looking at the lives of others, that those that don't know Jesus and saying, well, this is what's going to happen to you. That's not our call. We're not called to be the judge in people's lives. We're not the attorney. We don't have to know all the facts of the case in such a way that we can build an infallible case for God. No, we are witnesses. We are simply people who have seen Jesus move in our lives and are trying to point to that story and say, this is what I have seen. Justo Gonzalez says, of what it means to be a witness. It is by the power of the Spirit that we have faith. It is by the power of the Spirit that we can live in hope, even in the worst of circumstances. It is by the power of the Spirit that we know that we are loved children of God, even while the world tramples us. That power has been given to us, not just so that we may enjoy it in our lives, but above all, so that we can be witnesses to Jesus and to God's reign. In Ecclesia, this is our call. Not that we would have it all figured out, but that simply we would be faithful witnesses, trying to live in response to the power that God has poured out in our lives. And in closing today, I want to just look at two texts uh, from, from the New Testament that talk about this power, because I think that this is where God is inviting us. Jesus says, wait and you will be clothed with power. And in so many ways, we are waiting on the Lord to see what it means for us to be a people responding, a people that know who we are, that know His promises to us, that are formed in His holiness, and that are moving towards the world in power. And one prayer that I want to invite us all to pray over the coming months is from uh, this beautiful prayer. Paul just writes in this soaring language in Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through His Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power, you hear that? The power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Ecclesia, I want to pause right there. Paul is praying for us to have power, but notice that power is not so that we can do incredible things for God. Yes, that will come. But that power is so that we can know who we are, to know that we are deeply loved by God, to know the breadth and length and height and depth of His love for us. Paul goes on, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. What an incredible image. Verse 20. Now to him but who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul, as he writes in Ephesians, is inviting us to the just the incomparable power of God, the power to know who we are the power to know God's love, the power to be filled with all the fullness of God, and the power for Him to accomplish. And I notice it's so beautiful that Paul puts all the onus upon God. He's saying He will accomplish it. He will do it in us as we submit and yield our lives to Him. And it will bring Christ's glory. 
Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is such an incredible, such an incredible vision of what it means to live into God's power. I want to read a text from 2 Peter, beginning in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1. Peter writes, His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Thus He has given us through these things His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours, and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ecclesia, there's this beautiful interplay in this text from 2 Peter. Peter says his divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness. So it's God's power working in us. But then Peter says, so because we have this incredible power, because we, he says in verse 4, he says, we are participants in the divine nature. What an incredible image. For this reason, we have to exercise our power. In verse 5, Peter tells us we have to make every effort, every effort to pursue faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and mutual affection. These are the things that God's power enable us to do. We exercise our power in response to God's power. And so, Ecclesia, I hope those stories that I started with, those stories that bearing witness from the early church stirred your heart. I hope they made you yearn. And when we think about God's power, I think oftentimes we think, oh, that's just, those, those were other days or other places. But Jesus' promise to the apostles in, in Acts chapter 1 is his promise that stands for us today. Wait on the Lord and you will be clothed with power. And we often think of power in terms of position or knowledge or ability, but that is not the biblical framework of power. Now, the power that God has for us is his power poured out upon each one of us. Wait, Jesus says, and you will be clothed with power. Paul writes about the power of God in 1 Corinthians. He says, for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are called to be witnesses. We are called to bear witness to what Jesus has done in our lives. To bear witness to his power poured out upon the cross. That though he, we deemed him weak, though we deemed him forsaken, he was actually enacting the salvation and the life of the entire world. That by emptying himself of his own power. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father. And Ecclesia, we need this power, this upside down power, this subversive power to be the people that God has called us to be. And so wait on the Lord. You will be clothed with power. Allow God's power to meet you where you are, to to infuse your life with his purpose, with his joy, with his sense of promise that you are who he says you are you are. We are people of God's power, and we wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord, and we will be his witnesses together. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.